focus on a specific market area where you can be the best at what you do. And that's what we've really focused on the last two years, and it served us well. In a time plagued by groupthink, a tribe known as the Millionites have emerged from the depths of time to alter our trajectory for the betterment of humanity. These are their chronicles. Welcome to our community, where every single week we'll study the craft of some of the most successful entrepreneurial leaders in their given area of expertise. We'll take a trip down memory lane, long before the millions, to uncover their secrets to success and how they've achieved their goals. By doing this, we can fast track our way to success and live the life we've always dreamt of. So, whether you are looking to attain financial freedom, location independence, or reaching the millionth mark of your milestones and more, then you've come to the right place. Stick around to find out what works, what doesn't, and how you can reach your millions. If you would like instant access to our back catalog, visit us at beforethemillions.com. And now, your host, DeRay Olaleye. What's going on, BTM community? I'm your humble host, DeRay Olaleye, and we're back. I think this is the 19th installment of the BTM podcast, and you know... This episode is probably the first episode I ever, or maybe the second episode I ever recorded. And I actually never planned on releasing this episode, maybe not as a podcast, but maybe, you know, purposing it for something else. But I never actually planned on releasing it as a podcast because I felt as though the audio quality wasn't as good or isn't as good as the usual audio quality. And I didn't ever want to give you guys bad content, but you know, we've, we've scrubbed it many times and you know, it's, it's gotten better. And you know, the reason we're releasing this episode actually is because I'm still in Houston and it's been a crazy week and we're still dealing with the whole hurricane Harvey situation. And we've just kind of been trying to, trying to get this, the city back to, to functioning the way we know it to function. And it's, it's been a whole city effort. And, you know, I just want to thank everybody who's, who supported us as a city, who's given to the city, who's volunteered. And, you know, it's, it's truly amazing what everybody from all around the world is doing just to make sure that, you know, Houston is well taken care of. So I love it, but yeah, I've, I've been busy myself just kind of volunteering and creating efforts to revitalize the city and I haven't had much of my equipment with me. I didn't want to leave you guys without a, a podcast episode this week. So I decided to go ahead and release the first ever or maybe the second ever episode I recorded. So you'll have to excuse my audio quality and also maybe my, my newness to the whole podcasting realm, because at the time I didn't know what I was doing, but I still don't. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. It, you know, our last episode, episode 18 with uh, Karen Briscoe was more so geared towards real estate agents and how to become a thriving real estate agent. And I think this episode complements that episode really, really well. This episode is is with Logan Waller and he's a broker out of the Dallas Fort Worth area and he owns his own brokerage firm and they're doing some really, really cool things on the ground there in Dallas. So I had him on the show early, early on and just kind of decided to never release it. So I think it'd be a, 
a good perspective episode because like I said, you know, last episode we were, we were kind of uh, looking at the real estate market from the perspective of an agent. And this episode we'll be looking at the real estate market, being a real estate professional and real estate entrepreneurism from the perspective of a broker. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. And if you haven't already visit our resources page, we have tons of resources there and take a look around. You know, there's, there's going to be a lot of goodies, a lot of good recommendations in there. So I definitely recommend bookmarking that page and, you know, visiting that page every so often. Apart from that, guys, I mean, unless, unless you guys have anything, they go get them. We recommend only the best books on this show. With that being said, we can understand the urge to read the last book you've heard an entrepreneur get excited about. Well, guess what? You can go read it right now. We've partnered with Audible, an Amazon company that produces high-quality audiobooks. Together, we are offering, and for free, a 30-day trial and one free book as soon as you sign up. So, if you've been eyeing a certain book but haven't quite been able to pull the trigger yet, we'd love to cover the cost for you. Just visit audibletrial.com slash before the millions to start reading or listening to your next free book. The link is also in the show notes of this episode at beforethemillions.com. Hey, Logan, how's it going? Fantastic. That's great. Glad to have you on the show. A little bit about Logan. He is the founder of the Logan Waller Group. The Waller Group is a real estate brokerage group in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And since 2012, the Waller Group has been providing full-service brokerage throughout DFW. So that's a little bit about Logan and Logan's background and what Logan does for a living, but we want to dive deep into Logan's personal life and take it all the way back before Logan was a president of his group and even maybe before Logan was a broker, maybe college Logan. We want to talk about him and his thoughts and his motivations and maybe why Logan chose to become an entrepreneur. So let's start from there and you know work our way up. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on the show. I'm glad to be here and hope that I can provide help in, in some way. But it actually goes back before college with me. In high school, my first business was a vending machine business. So I had turnstile gumball machines and candy machines and salons and tanning salons and small town Ardmore, Oklahoma. So that was my first exposure to entrepreneurship. And I sold that business for you know a few hundred dollars which for me that was i was very proud of my my <laughs> business yep. sale before i went to college and then at cameron university in lawton oklahoma i obtained my real estate license in 1997 it'll be 20 years approaching here in the next few weeks and the whole goal when i was licensed was to invest in real estate most of my family had done well and has done very well investing in commercial real estate and investment properties. And so that was my my goal was to aspire to, to do what they've done for decades. So I bought my first house when I was 18 for $6,000. And after I remodeled that house and I it was kind of our quasi-fraternity house at Cameron University, for our fraternity, and six months later, I sold it and was part of the you know donated part of the proceeds to our fraternity and I think I sold it for thirty-two thousand and bought it for six thousand. So for me, it was like a lotto ticket. It was it, once that got into my blood that I never wanted to look back from real estate, and I've I've done it ever since in one way or another. It's just taken many fashions since then and in different forms. And 
a lot of that has to do with you know, staying ahead of the market. That's great. That's great. So you started off with a single family residence and six months later you sold your investment of 6K for 32K. That's impressive in yes. itself. So how did you find this property? How did you stumble across it and what made it such a good deal to you at that time? Well, it was in a small town, a kind of resort market, resort maybe a far stretch. It was a, a rundown resort market outside of off near a lake, about 20 minutes in the Wichita Mountains outside of Lawton, Oklahoma. So in the Roaring Twenties, there was a lot of history in this little resort town around the creek. But there's an old cobblestone house, about 600 square feet. It's actually being used as a storage shed from the neighbor. And I thought it had an architectural appeal and it had a historical appeal to it. And along with a lot of the homes that were these cobblestone homes built in the Roaring Twenties, around the creek and they were all split level tiered on the side of the hill. So it was a, it was a really interesting, architecturally interesting area. And so I remember my grandfather gave all of the grandkids Christmas, $10,000. And, and so I was wanted to really make him proud because he's one of my, my biggest mentors. And so I had consulted with my, my broker at the time, because I was just recently licensed with my real estate license and my family and everyone else and surprised him. And he said he was embarrassed <laughs> because of the liability that I had such a terrible property. So I felt awful about it. But long story short, he liked it so much after we finished remodeling it, he wanted to buy another weekend home in the same little community. So and since then, then that community really did take off and other people saw the same value and historical and architectural value in the area. It's now a completely different area than it was back in 1990, I guess, seven or 98 when I purchased it. So how, you know, how much do you think that that property would be worth today? Oh, gosh. You know, after I sold that, I started selling lots and I started selling other houses in that little area. And the values went up considerably after I sold mine. And I remember I bought a house for my grandparents or they, they bought a house through me for, I think, 30000 after I sold mine. Then they sold that for 90000 Now, I think houses in that area you know, are in the low 100s, maybe more than that. I haven't been watching the values there. I moved in 2000, 2002 is when I moved to Dallas and I wanted to you know, flip. I hate to always use the word flipping homes because I used to do a lot of work myself and there was no flipping about it. It was really creating more value and doing a lot of a lot of hard work to those houses to increase the value. But I did that quite a bit while I was an undergrad at Cameron University and I would buy foreclosures and then improve them and resell them. And I had a model, very strict model and kind of specific rules that I stayed with for that. And I wanted to do the same thing in Dallas, but the investors were like sharks in Dallas. So I just didn't have the credit line to and the capacity to do it. But when I started brokering, then I realized you know, that was the best way to, to find the best deals was to have a sales velocity. And really, ever since then, 2002, that's always been my goal to develop as much of a sales velocity as I could where I could identify the best deals. Okay. So brokering was kind of your cheat sheet, if you may into investing although you invested before you started brokering you you realized more so that when you started brokering you had access to to more properties per se right 
Okay. You know, I, I, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I made a lot of mistakes. When I sold the most is really when I should have been buying the most at the bottom of the market. But, you know, we can all look back and learn from our mistakes. But what I learned working for a lot of the large banks, my career, my 20s, which was brokering a lot of foreclosures for most of the major banks and servicers, then I learned how they negotiate and how they value their properties and yeah. that was extremely important it's it served me well in my career today okay okay so kind of going back to your college days so you started in 1997 and by 2002 you had made the move to dallas with this move is this is this when you started the waller group or how did that inception come about no, I didn't know the difference between Dallas and Plano, hardly. I really was still <laughs> ignorant. And so I moved to Plano because I heard that was God's country. That's where there was so much development growth at the time. And I I sold you know, homes to first-time homebuyers, and I joined a team at REMAX. At the time, REMAX was the number one you know, producing franchise. And so I you know, found out who the top realtor was, and I joined her team. And I was a buyer specialist, so I just worked with buyers. And she made me prospect every day, and she made me attend the Mike Ferry seminar and subscribe to the Mike Ferry training system, which is about the most basic sales training there is when it comes to real estate sales. But to this day, some of the best training I ever had, and I still recommend it to anyone that's getting into the real estate business because real estate brokerage, if you can't sell, then you can't... <laughs> can't make any money. So if you're not making any money, then you're not going to get very far in brokerage. So there's no better trainer than Mike Ferry. It's very, very basic, but the basics don't change. You know, the fundamental sales process doesn't change. And I always tell my agents today, you know, if you know how to sell, whether you're selling widgets or houses or anything, then those skills will serve you in any anything that you do. So speaking on your agents today, what can an agent or an aspiring agent do to prep themselves or to to give them the, the credibility that they need to go out and prospect buyers and be taken seriously if they have no prior sales experience? Well, probably do something like what I did, join a team, a top producing team. So that way you have that sales velocity. You know, that's something I learned real young is be in an environment of where you have a high amount of transactional volume, not necessarily sales price, not necessarily high sales prices, but you just see a lot of volume and you're in the mix. And when you're with a top producing team, and if you're a buyer specialist, if you're a transaction manager, if you're doing something in a top producing team to where you see that and you see the mistakes that other people make, you see the, the pros and cons and, and you learn at such a faster rate, that accelerated my career in real estate so much. I think that's really important, just surrounding yourself with the right people and kind of picking up on the tools as you go along. A lot of people fear jumping in because they don't have the expertise or they don't have the background. But I say, you know, get plugged in as soon as you can and start failing as fast as you can, because the sooner you fail and the more you fail, the sooner you succeed. Exactly. So I like that a lot. Okay. So kind of fast forward in a little bit. So now you're, you've had experience in Dallas and then you kind of moved on to Plano. So how did the inception of the Waller Group come about and what were some of the challenges that you faced by starting your company? So I worked as a buyer specialist for about a year to get familiar with the Dallas market. And then I went on my own. I was an agent with Remax. 
you know, the whole reason I got my license when I was 19 is because I wanted to invest in real estate. And that was real important to me. And it wasn't necessarily to sell real estate, but was to accumulate wealth through the equity that I acquired, accrued in real estate. But I just didn't know how to do that at 19 with no capital, no experience, no connections, nothing. And so the only thing I knew how to do was was to learn from other people that were in the mix, those top producers. And so that's what I did with a year. I learned the basics, what I needed. So I went on my own and then I wanted to segue into commercial real estate out of residential and at about 23. Well, when you're 23 with no commercial background, no experience, and you want to start selling commercial properties, it's not really realistic. But <laughs> I was a typical realtor. You know, I made it 200000 a year and spent 210000 a year. So <laughs> to go work for a large commercial firm at $30,000 a year prospecting, it was just, I just couldn't do it. So I took my CCIM courses, which is another commercial certified commercial investment member, some of the best financial analysis and some of the best uh, appraisal analysis and, and courses you can take for commercial investment real estate. And I would recommend that to anyone. I'd still do my commercial agents. So I did that at 23. I thought it would give me an advantage. And then from there, I realized I needed to be with a big firm. So that's where the, the rub came in. And But I didn't want to take a pay cut. So what I did is I thought, well, you know, I'm moving on to be 24 years old. I need to figure out what I'm going to do as a career, as a career, and I don't want to just sell houses as a career. So that's when I started approaching the banks and I started learning more about foreclosures and how to sell these foreclosures because most of the realtors that sold these foreclosures were idiots. They had, they just were very unprofessional. They weren't very polished. They, it was kind of the it's what no one wanted to do at the time back in 2002, 2003. So I learned about it. And what I did is I would go learn, I would go to the West coast and, and California, LA and San Diego. And I would fly out to the top agents that were in other markets. And I joined associations to where I could learn the best practices of how these teams sold sometimes in Detroit, you know, they'd sell a thousand houses a year. And I thought it's a scalable business. It's recurring revenue. You know, that's what you want in your business. So that's when I, I went after that. The first year I took it, I did make less money, but I could see the big picture. And every year after that, my income doubled and my team, you know, grew. And you know, I was, I was selling 700, 750 houses within, I think, four or five years of starting my team at Remax. So then I, I stayed with Remax, but I just, became a partnership at LLC and changed my corporate entity to where I was the Waller Group and remained that and then went independent, left Remax in 2011, started my own firm and went through some personal problems. I had an ex that walked out on me and it was tough and you know, I was really kind of at the at the end of my rope. I had some problems with my family and so it was really the and the foreclosure business was falling apart because there was the, the market was getting better. So I still had high expenses. And so it's tough. I had about three years that were extremely difficult. And those years, you know, those, those challenges are what shape you the most. And so trying to make payroll. And I remember one day we had $8.50 in our operating account. And I was, you know, here I was used to making over $2 million a year. So I definitely went through a lot of challenges. And then the residential brokerage, I I created that business to, and 
focused on training agents, developing agents. I thought I've learned so much over the years. I can really help other agents, teach them how to sell and, and how to build a team. And But, you know, competing with Cobalt Baker and maybe Holiday and these other brokerages, it just wasn't in someone that I don't even like selling residential real estate. It just wasn't a good fit. But I, I gave it my best for five years. And it was two years ago that I transitioned back into what I love. I thought, you know, I'm 38 years old. I need to do what I love. And that's when I went into what I wanted to do when I was 23, and that's commercial investment sales. And fortunately, I had enough experience, you know, 17 years later, that I could do a better job independent and by myself. And we've just done phenomenal. I'm very, very pleased now with our success over the last two and a half years in investment sales. Okay, and that that's great. I took a lot of valuable nuggets out of a lot of things that you just brought up, but I want to get to this in a minute and I want to talk I want to talk about why most agents are not investors, but really quick, let's talk about the 0708 meltdown and what that meant to your business. Now, you said that you sold I believe it was about 750 houses a year and these were foreclosed homes. Now, Right. In a market such as this, that's not possible. Would you agree? <laughs> right, right. Now, you know, I still have people that call us on almost a weekly basis wanting foreclosures, distressed property, because I sold more than anyone in Texas. But now we all just kind of laugh when we try to look for that. There's just not, there's no inventory there. Yeah. And probably won't be for some time. So we transitioned to where. We're obviously not in a distressed market, so we look at the closest thing to distressed, and those are generally people that they have owned the property for you know over 10 years, so they've depreciated the property, and they have been through many housing cycles, and they're just happy to have their apartments full, and they have not increased their rents, and that's where we find the best opportunities. So. We use a lot of software and technology to target those type of owners, and it takes sometimes years to develop the relationship. And our goal is to you know, increase their net operating income, but it's not by doing it on that property. Normally, they don't want, they don't want to spend any money on that property, and there needs to be money spent on the property. So then we consult with them how to complete an N31 exchange and move them into a property that is less maintenance and a newer property and position them you know, for a succession plan. And it's worked very well. We've helped a lot of owners save a lot of money on their capital gains taxes and provided great opportunities for investors coming into the market that want to improve a property and improve the value. Okay. And just for our listeners who who don't know what a 1031 exchange is, it's a, it's a way to defer your capital gains tax on a sale of a property. So moving on and switching gears just a little bit, why do you think that most agents are not investors? I think they're short-sighted typically. I do see a lot of agents that want to flip houses. And like I said, I, I hate that term because it's just not, you know, if you can create value on a house and that's one thing, flipping a house, it's not, we typically don't do that. But most agents don't think like a business person. You'd mentioned books earlier. One of the best books I ever read was The E-Myth. And I've read that several times. It changed my business and changed my life. And if more agents would run their, their sales business like a business, then they wouldn't have the problems that they do. That definitely makes sense. And I'm a big fan of that book as well. I often run into, into that scenario in which 
you know, I have a friend and they call me, they're like, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start flipping houses or I'm going to become an agent. And while all these things are, are good and, and very beneficial to, to your learning and, and growing, you know, at the end of the day, that's a job and that job pays you based on your output. You're basically, you're trading, you're trading your time for money. Whereas on the flip side, what you're doing and what most entrepreneurs and business and business minds are doing is we're, we're building empires and we're collecting, you know, whether it's a, you know, like you said earlier, it's a scalable business and it's a recurring revenue type of stream. So I kind of want to just talk about that a little bit more and kind of shift the focus of, you know, maybe most real estate agents or home flippers. I think there's a need for better property managers and property management companies. I know we have a property management company and the bar is pretty low when it comes to most of the competition. So it's very difficult to find people that are happy with their management company. So that's, you know, that's scalable and that's recurring revenue. And that also provides opportunities for sales. And I think if I were, you know, if I had to do it all over again, one of the things that I would have done differently is I would have started my management business years ago and instead of the brokerage business. But you, know, you also have to do what you love. I love the art of a deal. I really love putting a deal together. I love creating value for a buyer and creating value for a seller. And there's something that just feels good about it. And, you know, a lot of, I think most at heart, most agents, good agents feel the same way. You know, they love being able to put someone into a home, you know, when it's residential, it's more emotional. So it's definitely a, a more emotional process. And that's why it is tough to operate it like a business. Very few agents do that. But when it comes to commercial and investment sales, it's different. You know, we really can, everything has a number on it. So, and everything has value and we can quantify it. So that to me is fun when I can do that. And, 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 I'm, and one client, I've saved him about $2 million on capital gains taxes this week. So those, those are really fun, fun moments. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Let's switch gears again a little bit back to the spotlight on you and talk about your some of your daily habits that attribute to your success. So let's more so just walk you know, let's take take me through a typical day in your world, like what you do from the time you wake up to, to when you go to sleep. And what are some of those daily habits that, that attribute to your success? Well, not all of them are good, but <laughs> when I wake up, I mean, I really do. And I, I guess I'm pretty lucky. I think about work and I love it. And it's, I think it's a testimony to how much I love what I do. And so I'm usually thinking about deals that are, that I'm working on that are top of mind. And then when I get into my office, I keep a, you know, I always say out of sight, out of mind. We have a, a team meeting every Monday and we discuss all the deals that we're working on. And I have a, a spreadsheet that's printed out that is has about 450 names on it of potential sellers that we're working with. That spreadsheet I have in my hand right now and I keep it with me in my notebook pretty much everywhere I go because something that is so easy for agents to lose sight of is the 80% of your resources, time and money should be spent finding sellers. And this is if you're in the brokerage business. And if you're, you know, if you're spending more than 20% of your time working with buyers, 
then it's too much time. So that's always been the, you know, the engine that drives the bus in our company and most successful brokerages. And it's so easy for licensed agents to lose sight of that because when you're constantly bombarded with buyers and, and phone calls from lots of buyers that are, you know, that have questions or inquiries, but if you have a good property and you properly market the property and expose it to the market and follow a good marketing plan, it'll sell itself. So your time and resources and money should really be spent identifying sellers. And that's what we do in our company. And we spend a lot of money to do that. Okay. So, so I don't know if that answered your question. So my day is really spent. There's so many distractions that come up through the day, but at the end of the day, I have that spreadsheet in front of me and I'm always looking and following up, updating my notes, our spreadsheets, our deals on moving, moving the seller closer to the listing. And that is where I really do try to spend, allocate 80% of my time. You know, I have a property management company. I also have junior agents and we have leasing agents. I have a transactional team to manage. So there's a lot of other things during the day that happen that are distractions, but I always remember and throughout the day, 80% of my time needs to be spent on developing these sellers, pushing them along to get them listed. Okay. That's amazing. That's a great piece of advice, by the way. So are there any daily habits that you kind of do in the morning when you wake up or maybe before you go to sleep? Is there, you know, do you journal? Do you, do you goal set? Is there anything like that that you do? Well, I think age has something to do with this. In my 20s, I spent a lot of time on goal setting and kind of creating a vivid dream of what I wanted to achieve by the age of 30. And I worked really hard to execute that. I really came within about 80% of that. I came pretty close. And I would I would have never been able to do that if I did not spend the time and write down my I'm kind of a coaching and consulting junkie. So these podcasts are great. And I'd listen to podcasts like this and I would constantly learn from other people. And in my 20s, that shaped my my habits and, and my focus for today. I think when you get to be in your 30s and get moving closer to 40, then your your focus and your habits are already shaped. So I really don't think about it. But you know, like I said, I spend 80% of my time working to develop sellers, and that's built into my business. But I don't really, as far as our our company goals, we do. I meet with my management team every other week and we do re- review our company goals and but it's as far as daily personal goals it's a lot different than it was when I was in my 20s now my focus is on the company in my 20s it was on me and personally what I could achieve okay and that that's great so quick question about the the sellers that that you do focus on what what prompts a seller to pick your company or your firm over let's say the guy down the street the short answer is a very defined market niche. So we sell primarily class C multifamily properties. So those are small apartment buildings, mostly in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex that are older than 30 years old. And it's between eight units and about 60 units. So we also have a property management company that manages those buildings. And it's a real unusual space to be in because most institutional owners, they want larger buildings, and most management companies either do single family. So, you know, we've really carved out a niche that there's just not a lot of competition in that market. And, you know, anytime you're Peter Thiel's book, I think it's zero to one, if I remember right, but you know, that was another 
kind of paradigm shift in my business several years ago. I thought, you know, why do I want to be in a business to where I've got all this competition and everyone else is doing the same? And I used to train my agents to do the same thing, you know, focus on a specific market area where you can be the best at what you do. And that's what we've really focused on the last two years. And it served us well. Okay. So since institutional money is typically after a hundred units and up and I guess individuals would be after, you know, single family residents, maybe a duplex. What's your target audience when it comes to these eight to 60 units? Like who are predominantly the buyers in your market? Right now it's about 20 to 30% West coast and foreign buyers. So they, they sell a house, you know, maybe an investment property in California for a million, million five, and they want to diversify their risk and they can't buy apartments in California for that. So they come here and they can buy, you know, eight or 20 units for that price. So it's a way to, for them to diversify their risk with multiple tenants. And it really goes back to the management. You know, that's the, the problem is that on a lot of these older properties, it's hard to find good management companies. That's where we have it all under one roof and that sets us apart. Okay, great. And I, I think that, I think that's, you know, if, we're, if we're selling, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of brokers out there peddling things for a commission, but if you're you know selling something and then you have to stand behind it with your management and your, your budget, it needs to be pretty accurate <laughs> yeah. going into the deal. So we kind of put our money where our mouth is. Okay. Before we switch gears to the next segment of the show, I want to kind of dig a little bit further into a comment that you made earlier about how you saved one of your clients $2 million. Tell us a little bit more about that story and how that came about. Well, at at least what you you can share. (laughs) Right. Sure. Yeah. He just wasn't familiar with the market as far as what's available inventory. And he also did not know the value of his current properties you know and i once i showed how you know they're worth so much more than the current income they're generating and an investor you know i have buyers that will go in and totally redevelop each property and charge more than double the rent that he's charging now so obviously they can afford to pay a lot more than what an income approach appraisal would warrant so it's better return on his capital if he were just to sell them and then buy low maintenance triple net properties and where there's no management and doesn't have to deal with it and it's like mailbox money so i'm sorry if i missed this part so you said that the seller was no longer looking at selling his property on an income basis so he's not looking at noi or cap rates is he looking at well, I should, re- I should restate this. He wasn't really a seller. I approached him because these are the type of people that we approach. They're never in, have the intentions of selling. They're happy that their apartments are full and they don't know where else they would put the money. Now, that's the case. Most of them are pretty conservative and, and they're, they know that they could be probably charging more rent and the properties probably need some work, but they don't know where else they would put their money. And they're typically properties are completely paid for. So they have a lot of equity in them. Yep. So that's where we consult them to go, you know, let's, let's help you with financing, take advantage of the low interest rates and sell your properties. And then we can do a 1031 exchange, defer your capital gain into another property and then increase your net operating income. Okay, great, great. So I actually have one more question that I want to get across before we switch segments of the show here. So you get deals brought to your desk every day. 
Now, how do you decide what deals you take to your buyers and what deals you want to invest in? Right. Okay. Great question. So obviously I want to invest in the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's where I say staying ahead of the market is important. And I look at areas that a lot of other investors don't want to be in. And sometimes even the banks don't want to loan in. And we're also affordable housing is going to be a much bigger challenge here in Dallas over the next few years. So I am looking at properties to where the rents currently are less than eleven hundred, twelve hundred a month. And you know, most of the new apartment buildings that they're building, which are building a lot, the rent started about fifteen fifty or sixteen hundred a month. So, you know, as long as you're buying properties to where the average rents are less than about thirteen or fourteen hundred a month, then there's runway for growth and it should be a for the most part a good investment. You know, there's so many variables with that, but just as a general rule of thumb for the Dallas Fort Worth marketplace. And it's just supply and demand and replacement cost. And these old apartment buildings, these can't be replaced for the the prices that they're trading at right now. So that's where I focus. And these cap rates are going down constantly. So the average cap rate on a property that we sell is around a seven cap. And we have some that are closer to 10 cap. We have some that are at you know, five and a half cap. So it depends on the location and there's a lot of variables there. But I am focused not so much on the cap rate, but on the affordability, because that's where I see the market really changing in the next several years is that there's going to be a real demand for affordable housing. And I want to make sure I have as much inventory in that stock as possible. Okay. Okay. Great answer. So really quick, do you know off the top of your head how many properties you own to date? Yes. I mean, this is where I really goofed up. You know, when I was selling 500, 700 homes a year, I should have been buying a lot of the best houses and I wasn't. And I bought three properties when I was 19 and 21 and 22 in Oklahoma, a duplex and townhouse and another townhouse, which I still own. And then I didn't buy anything until just last year when I started going back into investment sales and selling commercial properties. So I bought a 16 unit building and increased the net operating income 40% on that. And then I bought an eight unit building this year. And then I'm under contract on another 16 unit building that I should close this quarter. So they're small buildings, but they're buildings that I see have the most potential because I can increase the rent. And the thing about multifamily properties is just a small rental increase. When you multiply that by however many units you have and your appraisal or your value of the property is based on the income, then just a small rent increase can make the value of that property significantly more. So then you can refinance the property and and then pull out cash and go buy another property. And it's one of the things that's interesting to me is, of course, it took me about six months or a year to be in this business and selling these small apartment bills to figure this out. But my investors have made the most money. Sometimes they don't spend a dime on the building. They just increase the rent and then they refinance it, pull the cash out and buy another property. So it's a lot different than single family and learning there again, the sales velocity, you know, having a lot of sales under my belt in a short amount of time, I've learned so much from the buyers and sellers that 
I've worked with over the last two and a half years. It, it's allowed me to you know, purchase more property myself, and I've learned more about investment sales in the last two and a half years than I have in the probably the 10 years I sold REO and foreclosure properties. Okay, yeah, that, that's amazing. And I, I'm glad you touched on that point because it's very, very easy to compare asset classes. And when you think about real estate, more specifically, when you think about commercial real estate and multifamily and the small changes that you can make to, let's say, adding revenue to your top line or, you know, minusing or getting cheaper quotes for expenses on your bottom line and the, the, the little small increments of change that you make have a exponential effect on your income statement. Right. And it's, it's fascinating that there are so many people that have no idea of the, the benefits of owning real estate. The best real estate investing advice ever show is literally the only daily podcast that I subscribe to. And now I'm prescribing for you. The world's longest running daily real estate podcast. That's unprecedented. Visit joefearless.com slash show for the back catalog. Enjoy. You are listening to the Before the Millions. Before the Millions. Before the Millions. Before the Millions. Before the Millions podcast. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? I think it's the only bit of goodie. That's a great book. Okay. Good to great. Good to great would probably be my second second favorite. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Empathy. I think until I lost, you know, if you lose someone you love or if you have a, a debt, you have to deal with a traumatic situation, then I know I did not have empathy and I did not have the ability, no matter how hard I tried, I did not have the ability to manage people as well as I could have until that happened. At least that was my personal experience. Hopefully not everyone has to have that. <laughs> that was my experience. Yeah, definitely. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? My uncle and my grandfather. My grandfather was always an entrepreneur, had restaurant businesses, grew up in the Depression and was born in the dugout and was one of the most successful restaurateurs in Oklahoma. My uncle is a dentist and in the 90s, he would buy this. In the 90s, Walmart, they were developing their big box stores. So, their smaller stores, they were selling for pennies on the dollar. So, he would buy the old Walmart stores and convert them to Hastings Records, Parker Supply, Michaels, Joanne Fat. Like, there was about 12 different tenants that he worked with. And he did that throughout Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas. And, and he lives a very, very conservative lifestyle. He's the essence of philanthropy. Oh, wow. He, yeah, no one knows that he does the things that he does for thousands of people around the world. And he's probably my biggest mentor. Okay. My, yeah. I've always felt like that it's my business that will provide a financial vehicle to, to do the same thing. So it's one of the reasons I've always been passionate about my business. Same here. Why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions even though we have every intention on getting to the millions. I think most people forget if you don't maintain a focus on creating value in your business or for your client or whatever service that you're doing, then the 
profit and the money will not follow. And I tell that to my agents. I tell that to my staff. I tell that to people day in and day out. You know, focus on creating value and the profit will follow. We've learned so much and and we've learned about your your experiences in college, how you purchased your first house for 6K and you sold it six months later for 32K, which is outstanding. We learned how you began investing and how your grandfather pretty much put the investing bug in you and you literally took off from there and you moved to Dallas and you worked with Remax and you started your own company and you started a property management company. So if the listeners kind of want to get to know a little bit more about you or some of the services that you offer, where can the listeners get a hold of you and or your company? Logan at loganwaller.com is my email. That's the easiest way to reach me. And my phone number, office phone number is 214-736-1500. Okay, great. Again, Logan, thank you for being on the show. We've learned so much and I can't wait to have you back on the show for a part two because there were so many questions that I wanted to ask, but we are limited by time. So I do appreciate you, Logan, and you have a great rest of your afternoon. Great. I'm honored to participate. Thank you. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, guys, that's the end of our episode and we're glad that you stuck around all the way to the end. Look, if you got some value from the show, don't forget to leave a rating and review. Leave us a five-star rating. And a five-star review, if that's possible. I don't know. But leave us a rating and review, guys. It really, really helps in the iTunes rankings. If you haven't, if you're one of those stragglers and you haven't already submitted your iTunes rating and review so that you'll be entered in the Before the Millions contest for Scott Trench's new book, Set for Life, do that now. Because on next week's episode, we will be announcing the winner. That's all I got, guys. See you guys next week. (laughs) 